This guy never got charged. He never got a trial. That is medieval. That is not a thing that should happen in a modern country, especially a country that prides itself on life, liberty, and due process and justice. This is not something that should happen in the 21st century. That was Latif Nasser, co-host of Radiolab and 2021 DuPont Award finalist for his podcast, The Other Latif. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm excited because we're just four days away from our 2021 DuPont ceremony. This is this is what we prepare for all year. Just like everything else, it's virtual this year. And as some of you may know, for the first time ever, we are going to be announcing our winners during the ceremony. That's right. The DuPont jury selected a group of 30 finalists for our silver baton. And on Tuesday, February 9th, we will announce the 15 winners. And if you're wondering why we decided to switch things up this year, it's because the jury just saw so much great reporting come out of the truly insane year that was 2020 that they wanted to make sure that all of that good work was recognized and properly honored. And some more big news. The ceremony will be streaming on PBS digital platforms. They sent us a list of all the places that it might show up and it was amazing. I got a little lost, who knew that PBS was on Roku? We'll have a link on our On Assignment webpage where you can catch the show. But first, a preview of one of our finalists in today's episode. Latif Nasser, whose podcast The Other Latif, a part of WNYC's Radio Lab, tells the story of a man who shares Latif's name and who just so happens to be a detainee at Guantanamo Bay. Right, this other Latif has been held at Guantanamo for almost 20 years now. And if you ask the US government, you'd hear that he was one of Al-Qaeda's top explosive experts and an advisor to Osama bin Laden. But if you ask his lawyer, you'll get a completely different story, one of a man who was at the wrong place at the wrong time. So our Latif, the one we're interviewing today, took it upon himself to figure out which side of the story is true. So without further ado, here is our interview with Latif Nasser, starting with a clip from the podcast trailer. I've spent three years obsessed with this guy, retracing his story from his home in Casablanca to the most notorious prison in the world. I'm trying to find the truth in a place outside the bounds of law. It's tough to know who to trust, whether they're a CIA agent or a former detainee. This is the hardest story I've ever reported. Was he a member of the Taliban? Classified. Was he tortured? Yes. This started as a story about a name, but it became so much more. Can you just uh, take us back and give us the origin story? Like, how did this come about? So uh, the way this all started was I was on Twitter. I, I saw someone tweeting about me, which didn't really make any sense because they were tweeting at the president of the United States. I was looking at it. I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. It clicked after a second that, that it was not about me. It was about a guy with my same name and that he was a detainee at Guantanamo Bay, which was a place I had barely thought about for uh, years, if not a decade or something. And so I just all of a sudden got really curious about this guy with my name. And, and I started learning more and more about him. I found a kind of a 
pretty heinous rap sheet that was leaked from the Department of Defense that said that this guy was al-Qaeda's explosives expert. He was uh, a top military advisor to Osama bin Laden, things like that. Then I, uh, soon after I connected with his lawyer, who basically said that none of that was true. He had not been in Al-Qaeda. He was just the wrong place at the wrong time. And not only had he been uh, detained without charge for going on, at that point, 14 years, but, but also uh, that he had been unanimously cleared to go home by the United States government. And uh, they, they weren't letting him for sort of mysterious reasons. So I had these kind of two portraits of this guy. Was he uh, the worst of the worst or did he just have the worst of the worst luck? And, and so that was sort of like, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't not investigate. I couldn't not try to figure out what was going on. And you traveled a lot for the story, which was incredible to travel with you. And you guys have said, you know, obviously you sound so well and visiting his family um, and then going to Guantanamo, like, oh my God. But the thing, one of the things that really stayed with me is the sunflower fields of Osama bin Laden, like something that just was, I would not even have imagined that as a thing. Sudan is a wonderfully fertile country and, and uh, bin Laden really had the idea it could feed the world if it were properly organized and, and he's right. He, he raised cattle and horses and there was corn and sesame and- Fava beans, watermelon. All sorts of things. But the crop that was the most important to him was his sunflowers. His wife, Najwa, said he was obsessed with growing um, the biggest sunflower heads that, that existed in the whole world. Oh, wow. He thought that his sunflowers should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. What? Yeah, I mean, it was just as an image. It was just like a very evocative, strange image to just imagine this this guy in this sunflower farm, which may have been just an innocent sunflower farm or may have been kind of a terrorist training camp. And just constantly, as we were reporting, sort of flip-flopping on like, what was this place? Um, and then also it was like, it, it was just this sort of admittedly small, but it was this chapter of the Osama bin Laden story that I had never heard of. Like, who knew that Osama bin Laden wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the biggest, best sunflowers in the world? Like, it's such a strange thing. And I don't even even know if we included this in the piece, but it turned out that later on, in part because of this sort of weird phase where he had spent time farming sunflowers, um, Osama bin Laden, from hiding, sent a letter to President Obama telling him to take climate change more seriously because I'm a farmer and I know these kinds of things, which is like, you you can't even make that up. And it's also so interesting that now, I mean, you can find out so much about an average American person online, right? But this guy, not so much. No, almost nothing, almost nothing. Like I, I would Google this guy and the, the, there were a bunch of results because they were all about me. It was very frustrating, actually. And then what I came to realize was just the amount of work to the amount of like, like how much it took for just a crumb of information about this guy, you know, compared to every other story I've ever done. There's just so much information in here. That information was all classified. It was all, you know, redacted. It was all there. I mean, the United States government has videotapes of, um, of all of the interrogations that they did at Guantanamo Bay, but we just can't see them. So all that information is there, but it was, it was locked away. And, and we, 
worked so hard, sort of almost single-mindedly for years to try to get some of that information. And we got some, but there's still, you know, I think we still just got a tiny, tiny fraction of, of what there is to know about this guy. You know, we got as much as I, I think anybody could reasonably get. It's hard to believe that you didn't think about walking away at least once, if not several times. It was so frustrating because you would work so hard and you would get a crumb of information and then it would feel satisfying until you thought about it for 10 minutes. And then you would think, wait a second, I don't trust this for 10 different reasons. And, and, and this person who created this document or this person who told us this little tidbit of information, like I, I have five different reasons to distrust this. Um, and, and so it was extraordinarily frustrating. To me, the thing that felt like the, the thing that sort of spurred us to keep going, and I, I know this is true for me, and I, I believe it to be true as well for my colleagues, was it just felt like nobody else was paying attention to this guy. And, and, and even if people did cover it, I don't think they would have covered it in quite the way that, that I did, which is I made it really personal. So talk about that. Was that a decision early on that you were going to make the story personal? I, I actually, I loathe putting myself into my stories. I, in years of being a journalist, like I, I have never done it. Uh, I don't do it on purpose. And in this case, what we found was that we were trying to make this series that had a giant hole in the middle. Like we did not have access to the main character. We did not have his voice. I still have not heard his voice. And so how do you make a, a, a multi-part podcast or, or even a, a single part podcast without the main character's voice mm. or kind of any, any real tangible sense of him? And what we realized was that sort of the, the premise, the premise that I share a name with this guy, it's sort of, we narratively, it became useful. We figured, hey, wait a second. In, in, as we're sort of drawing the timeline of this guy's life, like, oh, there's a giant dark spot over here. Like we have no idea why this guy went from this country to that country. And then it would be like, okay, let me just use myself to kind of try to imagine or illuminate what that could have been. And in so doing, it sort of did two things. It, it sort of helped make a narrative that was sort of coherent, but also I think it allowed, given that I'm you know, much more of a kind of an, an Americanized uh, person with a, a voice that maybe is more familiar, it, it helped, I think, rope in listeners and, and it, it helped people hook in and imagine themselves. Yeah, and I mean, since the war on terror began, or even since 9-11, there's always been this, you know, the odyssey of the radical, and you had to kind of share your own chapter as well in that, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, at the, at the beginning of this, like, I, I really sat down, especially with Sarakari, uh, who was one of the reporters who worked on it with me, and we, we kind of both sort of felt this way, like, it was like, the world doesn't need another story of uh, Muslim, terrorist, radicalized, you know, all these sort of keywords, it's like, we are, we are done, like, those nerves are, are numb to us like those are stories that the, the world does not need more of uh, so why are we doing this now and I think the the feeling was oh because I think that story tends to go a certain way people tend to hear it and and tell it in a, in a very specific way and we wanted to try to break that and we wanted to try to sort of imagine our way into that in a way that didn't feel like the version of that 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 you've seen a hundred times and, and that felt more personally real, I think uh, in this guy's case, that was a gray area case. It wasn't a fully innocent and it wasn't a, a evil mastermind, you know, pulling all the puppet strings. It, it wasn't that. It was something that is much more complicated and gray. And, and, and I think it was like finding that, finding 
a way to bring that sort of complexity to that story that's become such a two-dimensional story. That was really what we were trying to do all along. Can I ask you about the personal part of this? Because, you know, when things get personal, sometimes the journalism gets trickier. Were you concerned at all about losing your way from the journalism because it was becoming so personal? Yeah, it's funny. There was one time we, I, I, I don't know why we didn't use it. But there was one time I was interviewing a former congressman. I was asking him about some really very obscure, you know, provision on the NDAA or some, something like that. And he was like, look, you've lost your sense. Like, this is too personal for you. Like, this guy has your name and you've kind of lost your objectivity. And, and, and it, it's funny, like, because in some way, I think there were moments where that was certainly true. And I think what I tried to do, what we tried to do um, was this feeling of like, okay, just be honest about that. Like show that, that you're kind of pulling for this guy to be innocent, but then let the facts contradict you. Like just like be honest so that hopefully that the listener could, could keep trusting us. Right, and you were learning as you went. I mean, I'm assuming, but tell me that you began with an open mind, like, you know, it could, the story could have gone a number of ways. It, it certainly could have. When we started, it was, it felt like a blank slate. It was a page of blank Google search results. You know, it was just like this guy's name that he had been in Guantanamo, that's it. We had the feeling early on that whichever way it went, it, it would make for an interesting story. There, there were times where, you know, it was just like, this guy is the worst of the worst. What are we even doing giving him this much attention and, and humanizing this guy who's done some heinous things? Or on the contrary, like this is just, this system is so, uh, is so terrible that what, like, yeah. uh, how could, so, so we, we really flip-flopped a lot and kind of kept, um, and I think for a story to kind of, it's almost like a wrestling match for it to throw you so many times in so many different directions, it meant we, we, we had caught a powerful story. I'd love to hear about, I mean, the fact that you were able to get to go to Guantanamo. Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Here we are. All right, everybody, welcome to Guantanamo Bay. I'm Commander Ann Lianos. I'm the Chief Spokesperson for the Joint Task Force. So our goal and the tone that we want to set is that we're as transparent as possible. So what not to photograph? would be locks, the guards, power, water desalination plans, surveillance cameras, satellite dishes, panoramic views. The list went on for like 20 minutes. Fuel generation equipment. Or and it was not enough to tell us, like, don't take pictures of that. It was like, okay. At the end of every day, we'll do a review of your imagery. We're going to go through your camera, through the pictures one by one, and the things that have those things that we told you not to take photos of, we're going to delete them. My colleague Susie Lechtenberg was the one who sort of won and negotiated that access, which is sort of scarcer and scarcer, harder and harder to get that. But uh, going there for me was pretty nerve wracking. It was, I say, I say it in the podcast, but, but I, I really do think it's like every Muslim American's worst nightmare. This is a place where all Muslims got locked up and the keys thrown away and many are still there, which is why I kept that tape in of like me telling my parents that I was going and my mom getting really nervous. Um, but, and it, it was, it was especially surreal to land in this place that has such a, I think a devastating 
presence sort of in, in the world. And then to go there and you land and it's a Caribbean resort. It's beautiful. It's so nice. It's sunny. The beaches are like perfectly clean. And, and so many of the folks who are serving there are very young. They were barely sentient uh, if, if they were when 9-11 happened. And you're talking to them and they're so friendly and they're so nice. And, and so I was coming with all these expectations about this horrible Alcatraz sort of place. And then it went from bad to weirdly uh, pleasant uh, to then kind of interacting with the, all, the, all the press regulations that they have there. It just, it became sort of surreal again. I mean, the kinds of restrictions, like I had heard from previous uh, journalists who had done media trips to, to North Korea, and they said that this was far more stringent of uh, going through their cameras and deleting photos and, you know, these kinds of things like that, that this didn't even happen in North Korea. It's easily the strangest place I've ever visited as a journalist. Why is this work so important? I think at its, at its fundamental baseline, the reason that this story is important is because it's a story of a guy who was locked in a room and, and the key was thrown away 20 years ago. This guy never got charged. He never got a trial. That is medieval. That is not a thing that should happen in a modern country, especially a country that prides itself on, you know, life, liberty and due process and justice. This is not something that should happen in the 21st century. And, and for us to kind of stake this claim on this one guy in this one very unusual position, I think is actually really it's us standing up for what is a much bigger more universal value that is being in place since like the Magna Carta. Um, you, you, you can't just lock people up and throw away the key. That's not how this works. Um, I have a couple of sort of more general questions. Uh, because this has been such an extraordinary year of, I mean, before this year, but this year even more so, the level of disinformation, misinformation, fake news, attacks on the press. How bad is this problem? And what should journalists do about it? I think it's a very severe problem. Like I think facts are like a public utility. It's like the water or the electricity that you need or the internet connection that you need. Um, it's as if there are people who are going out and, and chopping down all the, all the power cables. Like, like this, is, this is just going to hurt us all. And, and COVID is just the latest example of that, where the things that doctors are telling us, it's literally a matter of life and death. We need to be able to know the right information and we need to be able to depend on it. And that is, that is not trivial. Do you, know, do you have any thoughts about what journalists can do, what the media can do? I mean, I, I don't know. I, th I mean, I, I, th I think we're all trying to do things in different ways, but, but to me, I do think that so much of it is, and this is a thing we try to do at Radio Lab, is try to kind of show your work, like be honest. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, uh, outlets that will just tell you something. And there's, you know, so many people just will read a headline and then that's it. That's the thing. I just want the takeaway. But to me, I think it's about showing the work. It's about saying, hey, look, I went in thinking this. This is what I heard. This is what it could mean. I think it's getting people invested in the question and then going out and finding the answer together. It, that's, to me, I find that so much more powerful than just telling people the answer. That's not going to work. Interesting. You are the 
person that we hear the story through, but you didn't work alone. Um, and true. radio, you know, there's an effortless intimacy to radio, but I'm sure a lot of work went into the sound design. And just talk to us about how many people and your approach with using audio specifically to tell the story. Uh, we had kind of a, a really dedicated little nucleus of, of people, which was uh, myself, Sarah Kari, Susie Lechtenberg. But then we had an enormous team. We were so lucky to have the resources of the show Radio Lab as, as a whole. And, and, and I feel so lucky in a way. One of the reasons why I feel so honored by this recognition is because I think it's also a recognition of WNYC Studios, which really gave us so much time and sort of space, uh, which is a luxury that I know so many journalists do not get. And they really sort of let us follow this investigation, even though like just, it must've been the most inefficient story like that's ever come out of that building. Um, but, but giving it the time and space, giving it all those trips around the world, those did not uh, come cheap. And, and yet to have that faith to really support and bring so many sort of brilliant minds uh, of whom I only named some, I am immensely grateful. And I think um, they helped make something that, uh, yeah, that, that I certainly could never have made on my own. So Lisa and I have video backgrounds. So it's always interesting to us to hear about audio production as if, you know, with video, you have a camera, everyone knows you're there. Audio probably has a lower profile. What was that like being out in the field? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I think in some ways, audio is the best of both worlds. Like I've done some TV type stuff. And what you, when you're interviewing people uh, with a camera in front of their face and the sun is only going to stay there for 15 more minutes and you just met this person and they're super sort of, it's their first time on camera. And, you know, those just makes the degree of difficulty higher. Whereas my recorder is like the size of a candy bar, basically. Uh, and I have a tiny mic and then like to, to be able to go in in a much more sort of low key way. Um, one of the sayings we have is uh, tape is cheap. We say that all the time at Radio Lab. And so it's great. So you just roll. So you just talk. You talk and 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 talk. And, and the kind of great thing about that is you can, people can get comfortable. They can let their guard down. They can kind of actually talk to you like a real human being without fearing what they look like. And, you know, and, and I, I do think another great thing about audio uh, as, as compared to television, and there are amazing things about television too, obviously. But um, one great thing is that you can listen and I think our, our eyes are so judgy, like we're so judgmental with our eyes and you can hear somebody and you can kind of be open to their perspective. Uh, Jad, uh, who I work with, says this all the time that you, you, you're putting the earbuds inside your ears and that noise is sort of reverberating through your skull. You're literally taking these people's voices and you're putting them inside your own head. It does bring that intimacy. Um, and, and I do think that there, there are a number of things that made this project like particularly suited to audio. Um, for example, like when you go to Guantanamo, every night they go through your camera and they delete the images that they don't want you to have. But the audio footage they don't listen to. And so it's, it's kind of great. You kind of sneak under the radar in a way with, with, with audio in a way that I think is, um, yeah, enables you to get a different kind of, of, of interaction, a different kind of tape. That's crazy that they didn't in any way censor or surveil your audio tape. I mean, yeah. that makes sense. Well, 
that they it's censored funny. your move. I mean, they censored your access. They censored a bunch of other stuff. I mean, of course, right. yeah. of course, of course. Yeah. You, no, you said you worked on this for three years. Was this the only thing you did for three years? No, for I would say for the first year and a half or so, I was doing other things as well. But then for about a year and a half, uh, Susie Lechtenberg and I, this was pr pretty much our full-time gig. Uh, this was the thing we were sort of thinking about all day, every day. Yeah. We, um, we're at a journalism school. And so we always like to ask our interviews what advice they have for journalists and or young journalists, young journalism students. And I especially think about the idea that, you know, these awards set standards, they model excellence, they they show our students and others what you can do. And I imagine if you're a journalism student and you're looking at what you all did, like how would I ever get to do that? And is there any practical uh, advice that would help them? It's it, it goes back to that very specific moment and not to bring it back to me, but like it goes to that very specific moment about the tweet, right? It's like, this was just a tweet. It really, it just started with a tweet. There are stories everywhere. There are stories everywhere. It just takes noticing a thing, Googling it, and then not stopping there, you know? Um, and it's, it's like push past that. And, and maybe other people aren't covering it. And that, that might be a good thing, actually, um, because that means you can kind of break a new path. You can make something that, that hasn't been made before. And I, to me, that's, that's kind of the, the great thrill of this job. What are you working on now? You're kind of a big deal now here. Uh, not, not at all true. The what am I doing now? Uh, so so I've, I've been making this uh, TV show, um, which is really exciting. And it's a, a science show. I'm actually trying to get Netflix to burn it onto DVDs for me so I can send a copy to Guantanamo. <laughs> um, but uh, so I'm doing that. And, and that's sort of uh, on pause right now. So we're not sure if that's coming back or not. And then um, I, I just have a whole slew of really exciting stories that I'm working on for Radiolab. I'm uh, working on one right now about a butterfly and this it's this extraordinarily rare butterfly that um, it only exists on a military base Fort Bragg in North Carolina and not only on the military base it only exists on the testing ranges uh, the artillery testing ranges uh, so it's this very beautiful uh, 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 well it's, a, it's uh, maybe it's a plain looking but it's, it's a very special butterfly um, and and it seems to only like to exist where there's cannons and <laughs> machine guns. <laughs> um, and it sounds like you're going for some lighter fare. It is lighter fare, like because because I didn't want, like I really did not want to cover this story. Uh, it, it's I, I just felt like it chose me, and I had to. And I'm much more comfortable doing science stories. I'm much more comfortable doing light, fluffy stuff because that's kind of who who I am. Um, I don't want to be. Um, talking to CIA analysts and, and uh, alleged terrorists and former generals and stuff. Like, I, I don't want to be doing any of that stuff. I, I would rather be sort of uh, talking about butterflies. Um, but, but this story came along and I felt like no one was going to cover this story. And if they did, no one was going to cover it in a way that, that, that maybe I and my colleagues could. Have you stayed in touch with uh, the other Latif's uh, family and... What do they have to say? What's the latest? Uh, Susie is still in touch with uh, one of the nephews over like social media, but, uh, but I'm not, I'm not in formal contact with, with the family. I am, I am still in touch with Abdul Latif. I have been writing uh, back and forth with him. Um, oh. Yeah. And he's and, writing to you? 
he's he's writing to me it's a kind of a funny it's such a weird they're not really direct letters because uh, that's those aren't really allowed um so I talked to the lawyer who then sort of conveys my thoughts and then uh, he writes to the lawyer and the lawyer writes to me and we're having a very odd drawn out conversation with two exactly opposite intermediaries being his defense attorney and the US government who are sort of filtering for the for the exact opposite stuff but I've been able to to talk to him he's given me his at least some partial thoughts on the series he hasn't heard the series he just uh he read the transcripts and actually there was one thing that he seems to have been quite upset about and and i was like oh what was it and uh it turned out that it was it was nothing that i had done or said it was something that the staff of guantanamo said which was that they provide him with intellectual enrichment um, and he, he, they said that there's a scene, I don't know if you remember it, but uh, where they're uh, gardening. And he just got so pissed because he's like, they gave us those seeds. They didn't even tell us what seeds they were. Um, they didn't know anything about gardening. What kind of intellectual enrichment is this? But it was such a fun, like, like out of the whole, you know, six hour series, um, that was the thing that really kind of just uh, tweaked him, you know? That's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was it completely blindsided me. You said he really reacted to the intellectual enrichment, but I wonder just what it was like for him, given that he's been incarcerated for 20 years on yeah. in Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> to read the transcript of his life story as told by you. Yeah, and 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 I and I probably like let's be honest, based on how many like scraps of information I was working on. I probably did it wrong. There are probably things I got wrong. And for him to have heard all of that, and yet still the kind of the thing that, the thing that bumped him was sort of this thing about his captivity now. I mean, I think that says something. I think it, it I think it says like, I get so little attention and, and kind of thought from people that are not my lawyer or my family that I'll take, I'll take, I'll take it. Cause I just need it. Cause I'm so alone here. I think that's, that's, I don't know. That's the way I kind of take it. But there's also this idea that you're, I mean, throughout this whole podcast, it's not as though you're his advocate the entire time. You're also saying like, but what if he's a terrorist? He might be a terrorist. He might've done all yeah. these things that they're saying about him. And that's not what he took issue with. No, no, no. Cause I'm sure he's heard way worse from his interrogators. He's heard way worse over the last 20 years. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's funny. It's funny. Like I, I don't know, and it, and he knows that his family listened to it, uh, and I don't think his family knew about any of that stuff about the, about that whole period in his life. Like, I have a million questions I want to ask him that I think I only will be able to ask him if and when he goes to Casablanca, uh, and I'll be on the first plane over there to try to ask him. Did you get any response from the government? Um, what they thought about the job that you did? I've heard from a number of current and retired military officials, including some who like went through elaborate ways to sort of anonymize themselves uh, to talk to me, um, who told me that they admired it, who actually in, in some cases really shocked me by saying that I didn't go far enough, uh, but I haven't received any kind of like official word from any official government uh, a DOD agency or anything like that, but yeah. Well, this is great. Is there anything you want to say? Is there any other? Oh, was there something you wanted to ask about Shelby? 
Oh, I just, I felt like that relationship was so tricky. And it is when you have a lawyer whose whole purpose is to protect their client and you're trying to get information out of them and they kind of hate you, but they kind of need you. And they, yeah. you're trying to win them over and you're, but you're also trying to get stuff out of them. They could hurt their client. It's, it's very complicated. I wondered if, if, if my suspicion about that dynamic was true. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I, uh, oh, exactly. And, and in some ways, I think it, it might have even been more so because as a lawyer, I think she and, and the rest of her legal team, who we talked to as well, they know that there was no more legal road to go. Like in a normal legal case, like right. you're, you're fighting the battle of public opinion, but you're also fighting this legal battle. In this right. case, there was no legal battle. There was just the court of public opinion. And so for, for this to have been kind of so much more kind of the the way that this guy's case like we, we joked that um this podcast was the closest thing that this guy got to a trial in you know 18 years and uh the fact that that yeah that that's the case like it, in a way it made it so much more sensitive so much more uh tricky because it's not like there was another place where you could adjudicate the facts if if i edited them wrong you know or if i edited them in, in a slanted way and was she happy with the way it turned out? Yeah. I mean, she's still talking to me. I, I think she's happy. She said she was happy. There was a, a kind of a funny thing she told me the other day. Uh, she went to see him for the first time and she went to Guantanamo. They had some COVID cases. They also had a hurricane. It's been a really, really horrible oh time for them. Yeah. And uh, and she went, she had to quarantine for 14 days and then she went, she saw him. And the first time she saw him, he had a stack of, of papers and they were the transcripts of the um, of the series. And he said to her, Shelby, I'm very disappointed. And she said, what? And he, and she, he had highlighted a, a lot of her answers. And, and she, he said, I'm, I'm very disappointed. You said things uh, not the way that we talked about them. Um, and she was like, oh, no, what did I do? Like, what did I say wrong? And she's in a way, she's his only representative to the outside world. And, um, and so she just started defending herself saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I must've said it in the wrong way, or I didn't mean to, I, or maybe I thought this thing or, and she was going. And then he just said, just kidding. <laughs> it's a weird place. Guantanamo is a weird place. I bet. I was thinking about you this week when this other, I guess a Yemeni guy was released. Yeah, and I was like, exactly. oh, God, someone actually got released. Exactly. So now there, it went from five guys in that sort of same situation to now six. And they, they say that there are a few more who are basically in the same position that, that they're about to have these hearings. And it, it doesn't look like it's going to be so, so difficult for them to get through them. And now it's just a question of like, what's so what's going to happen? Potentially, they'll actually get clearances and potentially they'll actually get sent home. Some of them, the lucky few, not some of them. Well, the ones that that sort of rightly the government decides are not no longer a, a threat. All indications uh, seem to be that pre uh, President Biden, as he said on the campaign trail, is going to kind of pick back up this issue that President Obama had worked to close and didn't uh, sort of finally fulfill, and that President Trump kind of just reversed course on. Do you think that the other Latif will then have any chance? I think he does. I think he has a pretty good chance. It's really kind of out of the realm of law and policy in a way. And it's in the realm of politics. Like if, if this becomes a, um, a big political football, um, the way 
it, it did become in the early days of the Obama administration. The, some of the folks I've talked to said that actually might hurt it. And there might be then a political cost to getting this guy out, which is sort of makes makes it harder. It raises the bar. But in, in a way, like uh, the lawyers almost were saying to me, like, OK, just just keep it quiet. Uh, and and maybe this thing will this thing will just sort of go off without a hitch without anybody paying attention. So they don't want you necessarily to say anything yeah. about it to make a big deal of it in your in your podcast. It's funny, yeah. It's a sort of a paradoxical thing. Um, they don't want to make such a big deal out of it, but at the same time, they I mean they do because they they also have other clients there who are not getting their due and who sort of maybe should. Uh, I think it's a delicate line because because no one really knows right now we're in a kind of a, a limbo zone where it's like could, could this guy get out it seems like he actually might so i think they are uh cautiously hopeful um optimistic to me i think that given that he was unanimously cleared to uh, return home um this should be a no-brainer the, the u.s government already said this guy ought to be back with his family in morocco and he's not and uh, it seems to me it shouldn't be as difficult as it is Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. And we will see you, Latif, on Tuesday. And you all can see him, too, when you join us live for our 2021 DuPont Awards Ceremony, hosted by Anderson Cooper and Michelle Norris. Join us at 8 p.m. on February 9th. You can see the show by going to our website, www.dupont.org. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert and our new production coordinator, Jack Rossiter-Munley. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Germ. Until next time.